This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. You know, I'm Gavin Kelly, Chair of the Resolution Foundation. Um, welcome to our, our final panel session today, uh, where we are going to sort of take a broader lens and look at the future of good work. Um, and I hope we can pull together some of the threads across the day, uh, because we're going to hear a bit like we did at the start of the day, we're going to return to, we're going to hear from a kind of a social investment, impact investment perspective. We're going to hear uh, from the world of policy, uh, and we're going to hear um, from real experts on, on, on the kind of the challenges of putting tech to, to, into, into work in the workplace in a progressive way rather than a regressive way. So um, uh, I'm going to introduce our three speakers. I think the way we'll try and do this is that we'll get each of our speakers to introduce kind of themselves and how their organization, what they do relates to the topic uh, of this panel. Uh, but then we'll sort of take a step back and sort of try and explore some areas that they would like to see developed in terms of innovation uh, to improve work. And then hopefully we can at the end finish with a uh, really big picture. What would you really like to see to put the world, to put the world right and send us, send us on our way uh, with a spring and a step? I do hope um, if people, I know it's been a long day, but I hope if you've got questions, you will be marshalling them and we'll, um, we'll, we'll make a bit of space to, to come to you. So please do uh, rouse yourself with some questions to put to our panel. Um, and we'll make sure we finish on time because I, I do appreciate the, the, the time that people have been here. It's been a great day. Um, so uh, I'm going to introduce our first speaker who is uh, on my left. I should say, by the way, I feel like I've got a Bunsen burner behind me. This screen is, uh, I hate to think what the, what the carbon emission from this, uh, I've never known a heat like it. So if, we, if, we, if, you, if we're all in shirts and you're all in jumpers, I'm impressed by this. It won't be there in an hour, I tell you. It's protective. It's protective, yeah. It's very, very hot. Um, so our first speaker is Paul Pissack. I imagine Paul will be known to many of you. Um, Paul runs the Joseph Rowntree Foundation uh, and uh, has thought hard about these issues. He's also, Paul, he, Paul has done, uh, he was at the top of Whitehall for a, a very long time. So he also brings kind of deep policy, governmental insight uh, to these questions. Um, but that's who we'll hear from first. Then we're going to hear from Daniel Satter, who's the chief executive of Big Issue Invest, uh, probably the most, I think, important social impact investor, social investor uh, we have around, um, uh, and someone and a friend of the Resolution Foundation. So we're really delighted to have uh, Danielle's expertise here. And then we're going to hear on my right from Anna Thomas, who's the co-founder and director uh, all things at the Institute for the Future of Work, who is a great organization. They've really carved out a, a role for themselves in a, in a, in a crowded uh, landscape, but they've kind of made this question about technology and how it impacts on the workplace and what you can do about it to mold it for the better their own uh, in a really impressive way in recent years. So I'm looking forward to hearing from Anna too. Uh, but let me turn to Paul to kick off. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, I don't think, oh, sorry. I don't think most of you will know me, so I'll, I'll um, just by way of introduction, um, 
as Kevin says, I'm the Chief Executive of the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, and um, JRF is an anti-poverty social change organisation. Um, and if you're if you're wondering what a social change organisation is, then maybe we'll get a bit into that through the conversation because it is a deliberately um, broad slash confused kind of title to give to an organisation, reflecting the fact that we do many different things. Um, and I spend a lot of my time wondering, are we doing the right things? Are we doing too many, too few? Are there the right balance, et cetera? And um, maybe we'll get into that a bit later on when we think about how to have the biggest impact on, on good work. Um, but just to start with the sort of obvious point, like what, why is JRF interested in good work? And, and this is the sort of um, the, the, the negative bit, if you like, um, uh, it's, but not a surprising bit, which is that um, there is a lot of in-work poverty um, and in many respects, in work poverty is something that has been getting worse, um, certainly during my policy lifetime. So if you go back to the mid 1990s onwards, it's basically been getting worse in various ways since then. Um, you know, roughly speaking, about one in 10 workers in the UK uh, will be in poverty. I'm saying roughly partly because the, the figures are a bit all over the place because of the pandemic at the moment. I think on the eve of the pandemic, it was about 13% of all workers were in poverty. Um, Another way of looking at that and, and seeing the change is that if you um, if you look at the the working age households who are in poverty um, today, um, roughly two thirds of those, a bit more than two thirds of those, on the eve of the pandemic, had somebody who was actually in work, and despite being in work, they were in poverty. If you go back to 1997, um, which is actually when the the I think the data was first collected, that was 50 percent. So. What that tells us is that, I mean, it is still the case that work is the best way out of poverty. And we should never be in any doubt of that for those people who can work, of course, and many people can't. Um, but for those who can, work is the best route out of poverty. But it is, in some regards, becoming less effective at taking people out of poverty than it used to. Um, and just for the audience now, where, where I'm talking about poverty there, I'm using the standards of 60% of the median line, which sometimes gets people saying, well, that's not real poverty, is it? I mean, I'd argue it is, of course, but like... Um, uh, we, with GRF, we look at deeper forms of poverty as well. So recently, we've done quite a lot of work around very deep poverty, which is when you go from 60% of the median to 40% of the median, so a much lower level of income. And there's been a very significant growth over about 20-year period of the number of people in very deep poverty, and around about half of those uh, are actually in working households. And then if you go to our very, very deepest form of poverty that we analyze, which we call destitution, and we had quite a big report out in the, uh, a couple of weeks ago about very, very rapidly rising levels of destitution, which is quite worrying. And even at that level, you go right down to that level, you can find people who are actually receiving um, income from paid work. About one in 10 of the people who are destitute are, um, are in work. So um, that's, that's the sort of long answer to why do we actually care about good work, just in terms of our core mission around poverty at JRF. And it's the, that's, the, that's the sort of depressing bit, if you like. Um, I'll try and keep it a bit more upbeat as we're coming towards the end of the... <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, one of the questions is, like, what, what's going on here? Because actually, and then here's a bit of um, light, I hope, is that one of the great success stories in British policymaking uh, over the last sort of 10, 20 years, and I would argue that is actually a relatively short list, um, but one of the things is the national living wage. And actually, we're, we're now at a point where I think the national living wage is close to two thirds of median wage. That's an extraordinary achievement. Um, and, you know, 
if, if we want to leave here this evening with a sort of sense of hope in the art of the possible, then, you know, just imagine what it would have been like 20 years ago, even thinking about introducing, um, you know, a, a living wage that would, um, you know, get to that point. We don't know. We need to keep going with that. There are all sorts of challenges with it, particularly around enforcement. But it's a, it's a huge success story, actually, in this country that we have a national living wage, which is actually one of the highest in the world, I think. Um, so this is not principally a problem with um, hourly wage, um, but it is a problem with the way in which jobs are constructed. Um, and so when we look at those people who are in very deep poverty and in work, you know, how do people escape from very deep poverty through work? It's not just getting into work if you're not in work, it's also those transitions from part-time to full-time, so it's the number of hours, which is absolutely critical. Um, it's around job security, so moving from temporary work to permanent work. It's moving from unsalaried work to salaried work. So, you know, the, the route out of poverty is not just no work to work. It is those aspects of the nature of work, um, which is where we start getting into questions of, of you know, what is good work. Um, alongside that, though, you know, just, that, that's it for the numbers. That's it for the quant. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, the, other, the other way in which we look at poverty within the foundation is as, uh, as an experience, you know, to some degree, an emotional, relational experience that people have. You know, what is it like to be in poverty? Um, and I think that's where you really get into the heart of what good work is about, or perhaps more obviously what bad work is about, as experienced by people on, on low incomes. I think I'm right in saying that if you, if you go back about 20 years-ish, there used to be a, a, a sort of premium, a well-being premium for being on low pay. So it was almost like the compensation for being on low pay is you, you were generally happier, uh, actually, than um, people who are further up the um, income spectrum but more stressed out. Um, I, I don't think that's reversed, but it's definitely been um, significantly taken out. You know, you, it's you, gone. There's, it, there's, yeah, there's, there's basically yeah. no difference now. Yeah. So, so there is. The, you've lost the compensation <laughs> for being on low pay. Um, and actually, what you have are a lot of low-paid workers who are feeling the stresses, the insecurities, the precariousness of the nature of work at the moment. Um, we talk a lot in the foundation about dignity and respect. Um, so we talk a lot in, in quite moral language about what people are owed in this country. And sometimes that is about money, but a lot of the time it's about dignity and respect and how do you create workplaces which um, afford people greater dignity and respect. Often, I think that comes to questions of security. We maybe come back to you know what it is about security. Um, we have, I think, very low levels of security in certain sectors, in particular in this in this country. Um, it can be about autonomy and voice and a sense of power. I think there've been sessions previously about um, you know collective voice, which is really critical. It can be about a sense of progression and training and not feeling stuck. So all of these things come together as important aspects of the nature of um, of, of good work. Um, just to finish off and just loop back a little bit to, um, you know, what is JRF doing about this um, to tee up going into conversation later? So, so we, uh, we are a policy think tank to some degree. Um, we don't call ourselves a think tank and for some reason whenever I say we're a think tank in the organisation people frown at me, but we sort of are a think tank, or at least we have a think tank element. We do thinking, I hope, and we do research analysis and we produce policy um, uh, documentation and recommendations. Um, but we are also a campaigning organisation. Um, you know, principally at the moment, we are campaigning around uprating uh, benefits and the, the basic rate of universal credit, our big campaign with Trussell Trust, but we do campaign in other areas. We've been um, very supportive uh, to, of the, the living, living wage campaign um, and very much part of that, um, that journey. Um, we also focus on movement building. Um, so within this context, then obviously union power is a critical element of it, but we would um, 
we we fund grassroots organizations we fund people who are in low pay to you know shape their own policy agenda and and give voice to their own uh, approaches to tackling these uh, these issues uh, and we're also an investor so we are a social investor so about, around about um five percent of our endowment is a ring fence for social investments which is about 20 million pounds at the moment um, and we invest through WorkerTech, but we also invest in housing, social investments, and other things. So we are a social investor, but it's, it's very much one of the tools in our toolkit. Um, and then the other bit, which, it, which sometimes underestimate, and I think foundations tend to underestimate, is that the lion's share of our money, the bit that we're not spending, or we're not actually putting into social investment as defined, we are nevertheless putting into investments. Um, and it, you know, I have a sense that there's no such thing as a no-impact investment. If you're investing in something, you are having an impact. You're making a choice. Yeah. You're, you're making a choice, you're having an impact. You might not be thinking about the impact you're making, but you, you are making an impact. And I think one of the big challenges for sort of financially well-endowed foundations at the moment, and, that, and quite a lot of foundations are going through this, this process thinking about it, is that this model where you don't think very much about the 96% of your wealth because it's just sitting, you know, growing, and then you've, you're absolutely relentlessly focused on the impact you're having with your 4% annually, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be relentlessly focused on the 4%, but what on earth are you doing with the 96%? And, and part of the journey we're going on as a foundation at the moment is thinking more uh, about uh, the way in which we're doing our mainstream investments, and, and certainly during 2024, that's going to be a big uh, theme for our uh, conversations with trustees so so we're very fortunate in the fact that we have lots of tools in the toolkit you know i think the legitimate question laid back to me frequently by my own trustees is why are we doing so many different things can't you just make your mind up and specialize um and there might be a case for that but actually an area like good work i think lends itself to exactly that kind of mixed approach and um, you know we're not going to solve it through mainstream policy and genteel conversations with my old friends in Whitehall, nor are we going to solve it all through social investment, frankly, but the right combination of different things tackling different problems holds out the prospect of making some progress. Great. Thank you very much, Paul. Fantastic. Um, and I want to come back to this kind of balance, balanced approach and, and how you get it right and how to think about it, because it's, it's something we grapple with at the Resolution Foundation. And I think it's uh, across the debate on kind of better work, good work, there is just a how much of our effort should be focused on the, the law, how much of it should be focused on employers trying out new stuff, which no one's done before, so let's come back to that. And just on the optimistic note, because it's important, I'm old enough to remember that in 2014, we published a report saying uh, that minimum wage, as it then was, should go up to, we should set an aspiration of reaching 60% of the median by uh, 2020, which much to our surprise, the government completely accepted. Yeah. Uh, and when we did that, the FT, The Economist, and The Times, and just about anyone else you get to mention, all use different words like insane, reckless, uh, you know, yada, yada, about us. And it was a whole, it was a real thing for us. I mean, we got really, really done over for being so wild. Um, so I don't take any pleasure at all in, in, in reminding any of those people. But it does show you uh, how the world does change. And all those people now say, oh, it's, of course, you know, it's a very conceptual thing and it was a very reasonable thing to do. Uh, and quite, and it's good that they do say that. But uh, the world has changed. And it, actually, that wasn't that long ago. So uh, optimism. Uh, Danielle, talk to us about, so, you know, from a social investment perspective, what, how does this topic today relate to what you do and uh, how should we? How would you like us to think about what social investment can offer? This 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 question. <clears throat> no, thank you. Um, I um, 
uh, and, and what you've said, Paul, really resonates, especially the kind of the focus, prioritize. I actually have hand gestures for this. It's like focus, prioritize. That's what the, the management consultants tell us to do. And we kind of say it's it's more complicated than than that. Uh, but the, the Big Issue Invest, a little bit about, about Big Issue Invest and, and the Big Issue. Uh, 1991, uh, Gordon Roddick and John Byrd set up uh, the Big Issue. And the idea was to give people a way to work their way out of poverty. Uh, I think in truth, it's a way of working out of destitution and into poverty. Uh, but I think saying I'm working towards poverty is, is probably not, not the right <laughs> kind of branding uh, that, that they should have. And, and at the time, what could you do if you were, if you were on the street? Um, if you wanted to sell something, and I'm talking about material things that you can sell, uh, you can sell cigarettes uh, and you can sell newspapers. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that John Bird and uh, Gordon Roddick chose to sell newspapers rather than cigarettes. You can imagine a big issue brand to this day. Um, a brand with, uh, I think it's 78% uh, brand recognition in households. It's quite an extraordinary thing um, they, they created. But the idea was providing a way for people to earn an income. And that's absolutely true today. Our vendors buy the magazine from us for £2.50. Sorry, they buy it for they buy it for £2 and they sell it for £4. It changes around Christmas. We always boost the price up around Christmas. Um, a quarter of the copies get sold at Christmas. So uh, please buy your, um, your big issue. Uh, but they, right from that very beginning, they realized that... Uh, it's really hard getting ventures going. And they, uh, in 2005, Nigel Kershaw and John Bird set up Big Issue Invest to invest in organizations like the Big Issue. So at the moment, we invest in uh, 140 different organizations um, in the portfolio. We've got about 45 million uh, under management. And it's everything from startup, uh, what I call kind of bread and butter finance. You know, you want to convert a few units above a shop into uh, refuge accommodation for women fleeing domestic violence. Well, 150 grand to East Durham Community Initiative. Um, you want to turn your uh, your books by diverse publishers uh, into audiobooks to raise more money. Well, there's 45 grand to hire two people for six months to try that out. Um, all the way through to our growth money. Where do you get money for growth? So when Be Caring, um, it's a care organization, but it's a worker co-op. How could they get finance? Uh, I think Emma was here earlier today in, in that space. Um, so that's where we step in to all these places where regular means, mainstream finance should be there, but doesn't quite get there. Uh, and nowadays, equity. Um, how do you put equity into the for-profit social purpose space, into the co-op space? So we have a small um, equity fund that we're running. So we both do direct lending. I'm also um, authorized and regulated by the FCA uh, because we have um, four or five of these FCA regulated funds. So I have um, unlimited liability for the conduct of the business. Uh, Post-financial crisis, nobody gets to walk away. Uh, and I think that's a very good thing. I will regret saying it's a very good thing if it goes horribly wrong. So why are we um, interested in uh, where does the overlap with good work happen? And I think it happens all across the portfolio. It's there in the big issue, because right now, Paul Cheel, who runs the big issue side of the big issue group, he's set up big issue e-bikes to say, well, our vendors uh, can sell magazines. What other things can people like our vendors do? 
Um, so we have an e-bytes uh, joint venture. We have a clothing upcycling joint venture. We have Big Issue Recruit, where we look to place our vendors into mainstream um, employment. So within the Big Issue, we're still pushing out that work piece. And then we invest across the portfolio, all the places where people struggle to get into the workforce. We invest in prisoner education um, to maintain education both in prison to outside of prison. So you get your qualification, you're less likely to fall uh, into, into unemployment. So good work just falls across everything we do. And I think in truth, um, selling the big issue is not good work. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a really uh, tough thing to do, really tough. Uh, and I think there's also an incredible bravery uh, in our vendors, because when you when you look around this um, uh, this platform or or amongst the room, you never know what story lies behind our our faces. But when you see a big issue vendor, you will think there's a reason why that person is a big issue vendor. Something must have happened to them that they hit a point in their life and they're now on their way up, and they've come to sell the magazine. So I think that's an incredibly brave thing. Uh, that our that our vendors do out there when they when they sell the magazine. That's a kind of bit of bit of overview stuff for for social investment in this space. You know, our whole job we're like the plumbers uh, of of the economy. Um, we take uh, there are pools of money. There are people that need money. As a social investment organization, we just put the pipework in that connects the money from where it is to where it's to where it's needed. And I I really. The, the statement, all, all investments have impact. We're just choosing to count it, I think, is one bit. And the second thing I'd say is, um, why do we only have to make money out of the bad stuff? It's like, why, why is it oil and gas and coal? Um, why can't we make some money out of the good stuff? And I think that's what we get to do in, uh, in social investment. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much. Uh, everybody needs a good plumber. That's... Uh... So um, we will come back, and I want to come back to you, I think, on just where, where, where we should be taking social investment. What, you know, basically, how would you like to see this pan out over the next five years? What, what's a plausible scale of ambition in the sort of space we're in, uh, both for growing kind of the, the worker tech space, but just more widely for social investment doing good? So we'll come, we'll come back to that. But, um, but let, let's, let's, let's go on to Anna. Anna, talk to us about what you do at your place. Um, and t take us back to the issue which we started off on this morning, which is really kind of technology is a huge, powerful force, uh, but to some degree it's a malleable force. It's kind of subject to social sort of social power, and we can sort of kind of affect how it plays out in the workplace in all sorts of ways, for good and for ill, and that's something which I know you focus on. So, so, so give us your perspective on that. Um, thank you very much um, for having me. Thank you. Um, uh, and a huge thank you to Louise too and to Rosation Ventures, um, which is a fantastic um, uh, venture uh, that we've been following um, and supporting um, and hope to continue to do that. Um, we um, are the Institute for the Future of Work, our research and development institute, um, examining uh, the impacts of technology on work and working lives. You said, um, uh, Gavin, at the beginning that you were very small at resolution, but compared to us, you were enormous. We're really very small. Um, but um, we do have a fantastic network of um, patrons, partners, research fellows, um, many of you in this room. Um, we run also the All-Party Parliamentary Group on the Future of Work. Um, we partner with Digit, for example, the ESRC-funded um, uh, Future of Work Centre. 
um, we are going to be um, uh, co-chairing. Oh, so, sorry. Oh, um, but this is this is the boring bit. So that, that's okay. But the um, we're going to be co-chairing the future of work group of the new responsible AI uh, program from the government, um, and we also host and run the Peace Readers Review, um, generously funded by the Nuffield Foundation, um, examining the impacts of technology and work and well-being. Um, so uh, what we do, we do actually have a framework. People are always saying, what is good work? And we have got a framework called a good work charter, which isn't a prescriptive um, framework, but it's a very broad sort of organizing framework that's been used um, in different ways by different stakeholders, um, researchers, policymakers, even investors to some extent. Um, and it's useful, um, although I won't go through it for this, um, uh, this audience, um, as, um, because it captures principles of good work, which interestingly do fit very well with AI and tech principles. We've sort of done a matching exercise and they work really well together. Um, it captures rights, so um, nationally and internationally, um, soft and hard law, um, and it also operates as a kind of checklist of impacts of technology at work. So of course we need much more research on that, we're all working on that, um, but it's a fantastic base we're finding to start, to start, to start from. So uh, we organise our work around three core challenges, changing work, where the challenge is um, that the risks and rewards of technology are not evenly spread, um, shifting power, that technology is driving big shifts in uh, power and challenging traditional uh, mechanisms for governance and accountability, um, and three, prioritising people, where people um, uh, with uh, lived experience and human values as well are not brought into this conversation at different levels. And that's particularly important because the future of work um, is such a, is, is um, as we've heard to, today, very fragmented, very fragmented, and fragmented in terms of the topics, fragmented in terms of the stakeholders, um, and fragmented in terms of the policy response too. So that's the background. So um, what do we um, uh, what do we what do we do? Um, I thought um, I would uh, give some examples of that, but pulling out things that perhaps we've talked about less throughout the day, um, uh, so as not to uh, duplicate that. Um, focusing on risks, um, automation impacts, and uh, thinking in a joined up way through the tech lifecycle. So, and in each of those, I'll give an example of what we think is happening in a big sense, what we're doing and what we're doing about it. So first of all, risks. So we've heard a huge amount of the potential of technology, and that's right, we're also techno-optimists. Um, but, um, and in particular, it has huge potential to understand past patterns of behavior and resource and identify new intervention points um, and direct um, its capabilities towards solving some of the huge problems that we're facing right across the country. Um, but also because of the capabilities, because of the way machine learning in particular learns from past patterns um, of a behavior, it picks up assumptions and it picks up stereotypes um, and it can um, multiply those um, at pace and at speed. Uh, it, they, these things will be projected into the future. Um, unless there is positive intervention. And there's also much more data um, and the fusion of data, as we've seen with ChatGPT, among other things, um, and, the, and less information about exactly how that's being used, um, which feeds growing uh, 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 information symmetries in the workplace. 
um, um, and is particularly tricky, particularly tricky when you're looking at not just the protected characteristics that are currently covered by the Equality Act, um, but other ones too. Um, and you're thinking about thousands and thousands of data points that may change as well continually as decisions are made. So, if so, we think that that needs to be understood and interrogated in order to be able to maximise the opportunities too. And things that we've done on it um, are. Um, a quality impact assessment, so moving beyond technical audits, um, analysing auditing tools and finding how very deficient they often are and how nobody's using them consistently and no one really understands what's happening. Um, and, um, and we're developing a model for a good work algorithmic impact assessment, which thinks about impacts, not just on equality, not just on bias, not just technically, um, but on social conditions and social impacts that includes quality and work. Um, and doing guidance for employers and trade unions too. Um, uh, the next thing we're doing is thinking about automation impacts. So um, in the uh, piece of readers review, we're thinking about automation impacts um, and ar archetypes of automation in different ways. And that's important, we think, because it structures risks and impacts differently. Um, and, it, and, it, and it leads to different outcomes outcomes for different groups and different people and again unless we sort of get into the surface of that um, it's it's hard to respond in a way that will really um, address the risks and maximize the opportunities um, the automation archetypes that we are um, that we're that we're looking at are substitution that's the one everyone talks about robots taking your jobs and a new firm level survey that um, we've done with Warwick Business School um, and has just come out finds that 79% of firms across the country are using AI and automation technologies to, to automate both cognitive and manual tasks. And with SMAEs doing it at the same rate uh, for cognitive tasks as manual tasks, so it's happening at a very fast pace. Um, but and, and, it, and it's hugely important, but it's not the only archetype. There's also augmentation. Um, as an archetype, so that so where these technologies can either augment and increase the discretion that you use, um, for example, helping you do your job, a radiologist for diagnosis, or it can do the opposite of that. Um, and often it can do the same things concurrently, and they have to be weighed up. Um, and the, uh, perhaps an example of where it's uh, where it's low discretion is when a driver is instructed in a very close way exactly how to. Um, to perform his duties. And now I think I'm running out of time, so I better hurry up. But the other ones are intensification, telepresence, so that you can either be freed up for home working or you could be surveilled um, and surveyed and matching. So an automated matching of individuals to tasks and jobs, which again can work very well or can perpetuate stereotypes. Um, uh, what we're doing with that, um, among other things, is a fantastic survey on capabilities, which haven't yet come out, but we've got the researcher here, um, Magda, um, Magdalena Sophia, who's uh, done it. Um, and uh, through that survey, which puts together the capabilities approach with technology um, and focus groups, um, we are informing our model for a preemptive uh, impact assessment much more closely. Um, it's also broadening the skills debate from thinking of something that is done to you after the damage is done to um, really identifying positive options and choices as early as possible um, in the ways when decisions um, are taken um, and also uh, informing our work on, on rights and information rights um, that uh, are needed uh, to allow this to um, 
to 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 to, to resonate. Uh, well, thank you, Anna. That's a huge amount uh, of work that you're doing uh, at your place. It's fantastic, and I want to come back to some. Of, I want to get you, you hear your voice on where you'd like to see us, if you like, trying to try things out, trying to find new ventures, because that's a, a wide set of issues and problems and challenges. Um, so I want to, to hear you on where we should be trying to deploy our resources. Um, on which, um, Paul, let me come to you um, to start with. Uh, I guess one of the things we struggle with, and lots of people in this space struggle with, is like, what, you know, where should, where should we deploy our effort? Um, and we've got at our place, as I sort of mentioned earlier, lots of big policy asks, um, but we've also got this ventures work. Um, and I think wherever you go, you can always see the critique of what you're doing rightly. So we could spend a whole time writing policy reports and it feels often like they fall on deaf ears. So is that the best use of our time? We could spend our whole time doing investing and that, you know, it's hugely exciting and impactful, but you, you, you then worry that you're kind of investing in very small organizations, dealing with relatively small numbers of people, haven't you see the scale of the challenge out there? Um, JRF, I mean, you, you know, you've got a, that, exactly that challenge, I think, but you've got it on a bigger scale, you're bigger endowment, if you like, a bigger organization. How do you, you have to reach a view, particularly when you look at the world of work and the problems we face, like how, what, what's your way of navigating that challenge and, and where you spend your, your pound, if you like, of effort? Um, yeah, so you, it's absolutely right that that is a, uh, a question we face every day as an organization and i'm not just in work but in lots of other areas of policy that we're interested in housing etc um it, i'm not going to pretend that we have a a sort of clear formula for how we reach a view on the marginal pound we don't and um i mean my trustees would love it if we did um we don't um and to some degree it's you know there's an art rather than a science in this i mean one thing we do look at is who else is operating in this space you know frankly there are policy areas we're really interested in and we might not do work on because Resolution Foundation is doing work on them or, or other organizations. Oh. What's the point in, in oh. um, duplicating? And the same would be across across other aspects. Um, I think, I mean, th thinking about work and the different sort of, I mean, I was just sort of jotting down, in my head, there are sort of five types of work that all need doing, um, some of which DRF is involved in and, and some less so. So it's absolutely the case we need national policy work. And I would argue that we need national legislative uh, interventions and a lot of people will say you know legislation is a sort of sledgehammer well actually sledgehammers are pretty useful for some things certainly if you want to drive a stake into the ground you use a sledgehammer um and actually it's been a long time since we've driven some new stakes in the ground in this kind of area and we've had repeated promises from the government and we've got um, promises from a potential future government so it's, it's a really really important part of the architecture, if you like, policy architecture for, for good work. So yes, GRF would absolutely have an interest in that. We have people who are focused on policy and you know government policy making. Um, the second area for me is around unions and union power. And actually, there's a policy angle to that as well in terms of the ability for unions to um, grow their membership and get their message across in different um, workplaces. Um, I think there is a campaigning bit, which um, I mean, we're, we're quite quiet on, or rather we're, we're sort of in the background on, but, but, you know, the real living wage has been a campaign. Sure. Uh, living hours um, is a campaign. We've been very proud to be part of that, but we tend to sort of stand behind those people who are doing it rather than, um, you know, at the front of the queue. I think there is a real question around sector approach. And actually, I know this is an area that you and Resolution have done a lot of work in and a lot of thinking about. We are not really doing anything in that space, um, except that I mean, we have a particular um, 
interest at the moment in outsourced workers, which isn't a sector as such, but is one of those thematic yeah. approaches because you know, the things that a national policy framework can't do is get into all the differences between different sectors or different types of work, I don't think, as effectively as, as sort of more targeted approaches. And then the final is sort of social R&D, if you like, and, and experimentation, social investment. And if I, if I think, you know, GRF is sort of playing a role across all five of those areas, um, but we're definitely sort of, you know, more at the front of the pack in some than others. Um, I think what we haven't been as good at as we should be, and I think I hope we're getting better at, is actually linking between them. Yeah. So um, I think when I arrived and looked at our social investment portfolio as a foundation, I struggled to find very clear connections between a set of social investments we were doing, which were driven by a very good social investment team in the finance. I think we're getting better now at having conversations. So we have, you know, a principal policy advisor um, immersed in questions around the care market, yeah. talking with our social investment team about, well, it, these are the issues I am finding. These are the policy asks that we're coming up with. You know, what could we do in the social investment space that would actually allow us to demonstrate, you know, uh, ways forward? So I, I don't think we're great at that, but I think we're getting slightly better at it. Um, just one final thing. So one thing I try not to worry about, which you which you mentioned, was scaling. Yeah. Um, I, I think partly because I spent ten years as a treasury official, where you know the way you killed good ideas was to ask, "Is it scalable?" Because you knew it wasn't, and you knew that would be a way of killing it. And so I'm very, very resistant to asking the scalability question, because partly because you take the boy out of the treasury. <laughs> <laughs> that bit you have taken out of me. So 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 I try not to ask the, is it going to be scalable? Because actually what we need more than anything is glimmers of hope. Uh, and I'll take a glimmer of hope even if it doesn't feel immediately scalable over, you know, killing an idea at a too early a stage. So I'm very much in the kind of, you know, let flowers bloom at this stage. Let's worry about scalability at a later point. We need to have things to point to which actually give people a sense of forward momentum rather than worrying too much about that sort of, well, how does that then translate back to the national policy framework? Great, that's really helpful. And it takes me directly on to Daniel. I wanted to kind of get you to help us get a kind of read on the sort of scale of impact that social investment can have in solving social problems that we care about in this sort of space like work, but it could be mm. the poverty premium or some other issue. Because, you know, well, Paul, Paul just made the case for don't worry about scale, it will kind of take care of itself in the long run, just kind of get some good things going which I've got a lot of sympathy, you know, getting good things going has a lot to be said for it, but we do need to justify spending money on this rather than other stuff. Um, and there are different ways in which social investment can actually lead to wider system change over and above the behavior of one particular venture in one particular market. This is your space. So kind of walk us through how social investment can lead to wider change and sort of how that happens and how failure can lead to wider change as well as success. I've spent uh, much of my career working for uh, strong women, uh, and uh, Dawn Ostwick uh, was one of them uh, who worked for the National Lotteries Community Fund. Uh, but I worked for Dawn at uh, Esme Fairburn Foundation. Uh, I think no, no one is perfect. Uh, Dawn certainly wasn't. Uh, but one of the things that Dawn said uh, that really stuck with me was the power of financial language it's very hard to argue against. You know, the model says it works or it doesn't. And, and there's, there's a kind of power there, which I think we can harness uh, and we, we should never give up uh, our power. So the power of money 
um, comes from there is some scale. Uh, and I, I think the point about scale, it was, this is what I call Travis Hollingsworth's moment of despair. Uh, he was a management consultant from a very prestigious firm who became the strategy guy at Big Society Capital. And he had to grapple with just this thing. Where, where should social investment go? So he asked 72 people in the sector and he got 72 different answers back. So being a good management consultant, he drew a four box grid and, and, he, and he threw the 72 answers into the four box so grid. There's a matrix. There's a matrix. Yeah. This, and this is what he came up with. So he said, um, first thing is um, uh, we need scale. Uh, and uh, we need scale to solve the problems we have. So 4.3 million homes in the private rented sector, three quarters of a million of them, I believe, were classed as unfit for human habitation. So if that's 100 grand a pop to fix those up, that's 75 billion. That's a big wadge of scale money that we need. But then the hope is that there's about 60 billion of outstanding finance in the social housing sector from the private sector. So scale is not impossible. Now it took from 1990 to the present day to get up to that 60 billion, but it is possible to apply very large scale chunks of money from the private sector uh, through a social lens to solve a social problem. The second bit of Travis's four box grid was to say um, bread and butter, small finance, it's absolutely fine. It was like a no contradiction message about some of the things. The other two, were about, um, uh, were about uh, innovation, that um, scale isn't enough. The problems are so big, we must innovate to solve them. So in the workspace, um, we actually funded um, Cornerstone in Scotland to go to the Dutch model of community care. They provide care in 17 different local authorities uh, across Scotland. And the, and the model, bad news managers, is you sack the managers, um, you replace them with coaches, and you roster them through an IT system, that matching bit that you were talking about, uh, and, you, um, you, and you use the savings to employ better qualified staff. So you raise the quality of care out at the end of the day. So there was, there was something there about an innovation solution. And the final bit was mass participation. You must get the involvement of the public in money. And that echoes back to Dawn's um, point about the, the, the power of the language of finance that we have allowed ourselves to be disempowered uh, by that financial language into believing it's something that we, that we can't cope with ourselves when actually we can. It's, uh, it's just money and it's, and it's fundamentally, it's our money. 40% of the invested assets in the UK pension funds. It is our money sitting there. One local authority, I'll stop on this one, one local authority, they were very pleased. They said, we allocated 50 million uh, to invest in our local area. They were a city-based uh, local authority pension fund. They thought, fantastic. Their definition of local was the European Union. So that, that sometimes, you know, we get wins, we have a little way to go. But I think if we can harness uh, our own money to solve the problems we're experiencing, not a bad thing. Thank you, Daniel. Um, now, I'm going to come to you, Anna, in a sec, but I, 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 I see with horror that time is galloping on, and I don't want to uh, fail in my basic duties as chair. So um, I'm gonna, we're going to run about a couple of minutes longer. Um, I'm looking at Louise, who's ultimate, the ultimate boss in this. We're going to run a couple of minutes longer before Louise comes up and wraps us up, because I know people have got things to get to. Are there any burning questions out there from people? Um, because if there are, this is probably the time for you to start showing your 
your hands, you may be you may be all talked out. I don't know. No. Yes, we do. So have we got a mic? Oh, yes, we do. Brilliant. There's a mic on its way. Anyone else for our? It's probably the time for pithy questions rather than. Um... <laughs> Thank you. Set. Tell us who you are. Um, hi, I'm Danae. I'm the founder of Vala. We're a legal tech platform for workers. Um, my question is about impact investment and the the state of the investment market overall. I'm a VC-backed company. I've you know seen other impact investors. I think the stat that I saw showed that it roughly halved this year compared to like the normal as it was from there. I mean, do you think that's just because of the wider trend or um, just where do you think impact is investing is going to be going as investment in general is starting to dry up? Great. Okay. Thank you. And so Daniel's going to pick that up in his very pithy final remark on the future of where social investment is going. Uh, anyone else want to come in? No, before I come back to the panel, feel free. No. Okay. Anna, I'm going to um, ask you to sort of give, give us your, based on all the work you've done on technology and how it plays out in the workforce, how it can be done well and badly by employers. What gives you all kind of, to, to sort of finish, give us your pitch about what you'd most like to see. What, what's the sort of practice that you would like to see in the sectors that you've looked at, logistics, retail, and so on? What would you like to see employers being willing to do to make sure that AI is the force that... A, a relatively benign force rather than the more malignant sort that we worry about. What are the sort of things that should be tried out? Hmm. Um, I could answer that in, on different, on different, and uh, different uh, levels. I think that the um, probably the most important thing, luckily, is there's been uh, the the one of the surveys that I mentioned is providing a way a business case for that. Mm -hmm. So it's about participation. It's about real, real, real participation um, and new methods, forums, and infrastructure um, to uh, to make that happen, which is so important in the tech um, and not just AI, but tech debate at the moment because it's just not there. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the most important thing. And the survey did find, by the way, so the uh, with Warwick Business School, um, I suppose not by the way at all, um, it was one of the most important findings that high involvement practices um, was a way of mediating perceptions and incentives in a way that was closely correlated with better outcomes in terms of good job creation and work quality. Now, that's really, really important. Um, so uh, collaborative infrastructure and participation. Um, I also can't help but also chuck in um, uh, you know, good workers are cross-cutting practice and policy objectives. So right the way through the tech life cycle, and that'll be a way of pulling together the things and having the joined up um, thinking that um, Paul, um, you know, identifies is so important and we just haven't been able to pull off having, um, um, and also practice. So sandboxing, so something that can be done both by responsible employers and investors now, um, but could work and inform uh, the development of both policy and regulation if done really well. So, um, watch this space. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, Danielle, for you, uh, give us, if we're having this, we're reconvening in five years' time. Uh, we've invested in another 50 wonderful ventures, huge impact, uh, and so on. But give us a sense of where you think the social investment space sh could be, should be, might be, depending on and what, and what will help it get it to its best possible place. Uh, particularly in relation to the world of work, but just more generally, like where is it headed and what can we do? Yeah, and I should I should touch on on your by by chance this morning I got a, a report from Wilson uh, Sonsini. Uh, they're a firm of lawyers. You will know them in in the tech space. 
for those that don't, and I, I was one, um, they, uh, they did the original legal work on uh, Google and Twitter, uh, and uh, they got paid, instead of cash, they got paid in stock uh, uh, on, the, on the founding documents for those companies. I think, you know, lawyers make a lot of money. I think they really, really made a lot of money. Um, but they, they do the, I, I was just looking at their, uh, their, their update on the sector, uh, and it's like it's, uh, it, it's cratered. Uh, it's essentially um, stock markets were, uh, were doing well. Uh, investors made historically high commitments to funds. Uh, markets have tanked a bit. They're struggling to make their uh, commitments on their uh, on their previous funds. Uh, so uh, across the ball, uh, there is a real shortage of, uh, of investors um, out there. So it's tough. It's always been tough, uh, and it's just particularly tough um, right right now. Um, for so, what can we do to get more money um, into this uh, into this space? Um, I think the first thing I would say is um, uh, something that one of our senior Tai Chi teachers told me uh, in a class. He was explaining uh, some meditation that we were doing. Uh, he's from New York and he's a builder. Uh, he's also extraordinary at Tai Chi. And he was going on this long thing about Chinese philosophy. And then he sighed and he said, basically, don't be a dick. And you can imagine that in a New York um, accent, it works really, really well. Uh, but part of what we can do is stop discriminating in the investment marketplace. Um, good news for women, um, private equity and venture capital investment has doubled from 2% to 4%. Uh, it's just so just don't be a dick is like the good, a really good start to this. And uh, invest uh, on a more equal basis is a very good start. I think the second thing is there is nothing like a bit of the legitimizing stamp of government to help money flow and give investors a bit of certainty. So I would say two things. Um, copy America, because that's always easy, and copy France, which is extremely difficult, even though it's 22 miles away rather than 3,000. So the thing to copy from America is long, I'm sure everybody asked for this absolutely everywhere, but it's please give us long, stable, consistent policy support for social investment. Even the British Business Bank's guarantee scheme switches on and off. Mm -hmm. It's the major intervention to guarantee small business lending, and it stops and it starts. It's absolutely dreadful. So long, consistent, stable policy, number one big ask. And that's what they have in America around social investment. The second bit, copy the French, um, which, is, which is tough for us, 100 years war and everything like that. But in, in France, they have the 90-10 the structure, um, Fund Solidaire. Uh, so what they said is, if you are a business with more than 50 employees, of course, you, you must offer pension options. All they said in France is, one of those options must be a 90-10 fund. 90% invested in responsible investment, mainstream markets, but 10 in the solidarity economy, um, which in France includes uh, workers' co-ops, as well as what we consider the social economy and the charitable sector here. 13 billion euros is now in those solidarity funds. 400 million or more euros gone into the solidarity economy. Um, it's absolutely extraordinary. That took time. Probably 15 years of that legislation has come into place. But those kind of little tweaks can really help private sector money flow into the, the social enterprise sector. And, and with choice, because there was no compulsion. 
to choose a 90-10 fund. It's just when people have a choice to do social good, actually, they really often choose to do just that. Thank you, Daniel. Um, brilliant. Um, sounds like a fascinating Tai Chi. Sorry. <laughs> uh, have to ask about that. Uh, Paul, uh, follow that. Um, if, if that was the kind of where social investment should be going, give us a, send us on our way with a where we should be hoping, expecting policy to take us and where a social change organisation can play, you know, can get us to in five years' time. Um, gosh, well, and I've never done Tai Chi, so I feel that as a, a huge disadvantage. I mean, I think just um, a, cu a couple of thought of re reasons to be cheerful in a way, and I don't quite know where we'll be in five years' time. I barely know where we'll be in like five minutes. But um, one thing is um, levels of ingenuity and levels of risk appetite. I think we, we always risk underestimating both of those things. I mean, I suspect within this room there is a, a ton of ingenuity around the sort of issues that you've been talking about today. And whilst you know overall rates of investment go up and down, and I fully agree with the don't be a dick. I mean, just 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 on the point about diversity of investments um, alongside gender. I mean, uh, you know, those uh, those who are looking to set up ventures who have who come with black heritage or people of colour, they are an even bigger disadvantage actually when it comes to accessing social investment. One of the things JRF is investing in at the moment is a new fund for exactly that um, purpose. Um, so there is there is ample opportunity to um, to invest in new ways, um, and actually, you know, we as a foundation, we are not alone in in looking to invest more in the social impact space and impact investment space, and we are not alone actually in saying we are deliberately ramping up our risk appetite. So one of the six principles underpinning our um, our new strategy is sort of take more risk, um, which is you know having been a civil servant for twenty years is. Uh, you know, deeply uncomfortable, um, but I'm but I'm doing my best. So so I think you know th that's a reason to be cheerful in the ingenuity space. There's there's lots of things we don't know how to sort yet and solve yet, but there's lots of people trying, and there's actually I think there is investment available there for for um uh, for some of those um, ventures. But, but actually, weirdly, the other reason I think that's cheap, some of this doesn't require ingenuity. Some of these are actually old problems that we've we've tackled before and sorted before, and that's why I slightly boringly come back to you know sometimes legislation is the answer. Um, you know, uh, look at statutory sick pay is a really good example. Statutory sick pay in this country is so bad, it's a reason to be cheerful because it can really only go in one direction from here. You know, if the effective replacement rate is about 11% or something, and I think in the OECD it's sort of 60 plus, when, when, you're, when your statutory sick pay is that crap, okay, it's going to go in one direction only, I think, you know, if government takes action. So, you know, to some, to some degree, we don't need to be world-beating in these areas. We just need to be a little bit better than crap, which is where we are. And so, so that's a really weird way of being cheerful, but it, it's one of the reasons why, you know, when I look at a lot of policy areas, and this is one, I do feel we're at a sort of turning point. You know, there is a breakdown in the current social and economic contract to a large degree. That's a sort of terrifying thing at one level, but it also fills me with quite a lot of hope about what the next 5, 10, 20 years bring in the policymaking space because you know I, I do have a sense that things things have kind of got to get better in some of these some of these areas yeah it's certainly time for uh, a bit of progress um uh, we have overrun uh, but i think they were three fantastic uh, speakers so i'm deeply indebted to them um let me just say to the audience it's been a fantastic audience too we're gonna louise is gonna rightly have the, the final words because this is her uh, thing more than anyone's um I just say from the Resolution Foundation, for me, uh, I, I really enjoyed the conversation and the nature of the conversation and the open ideas and the open way that our speakers 
and the audience have, have sort of taken part today. So thanks to all of you from me. Uh, let's show our appreciation to our speakers in the normal way. Uh, and we'll, we're going to leave the stage and uh, we're going to leave it to Louise to wrap things up. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.